Hey, Watkinsville, I am missing you. I'm standing in this room with a thousand empty seats in front of me, and this was not the way that we had planned spring to be. But God has a plan. He knows what he's doing, and we're trusting him with that. And so even as I speak to you today, I'm probably trying to imagine in my mind that a few of you are right here in the room with me. And uh, so I'm just thinking right over here, you know, I got uh, Greg and Cindy Hale and Meredith sitting there and we got uh, Chris and Susan Morgan right there and they're being like good Bereans. They're checking the scripture to make sure everything I'm saying is, is right. And I'm looking here, I got Noah and Kristen Huggins and they're just nodding and smiling and they're pulling and they're saying, you can do this, Pastor Carlos. And there's Kyle Wade back there saying, I love you. Pastor Carlos and some of you right now are coming in late and uh, I'm not going to name any names but then uh, we got uh, look up here and I see Jamie Antoine and well I don't see Jamie he's uh, he's not here again today but anyway hey I'm just trying to get my mind and heart around what we're doing and excited about how God's using this online experience while we can't be together face to face and praying a lot for it, praying for you. We've taken time even before uh, beginning this online service to pray and ask God to do things that we don't even know to ask, uh, that his Holy Spirit would be in control and in charge of this time. I want to ask you to uh, pray with me right now for just a moment And so let's bow together wherever you are and uh, let's pray. Father, I want to ask you to please speak to our hearts through this time that we're gathered. We gather in the name of Jesus in a lot of different places right now. And would you um, just kind of calm us, steady us, uh, capture our hearts and attention, take this message that you've put in my heart from Nehemiah, and use it in an eternal way in lives that are listening right now and in people that maybe will even listen hours from now or days or weeks from now. Father, we know that because of the way we're doing this right now that uh, people that are new to Watkinsville are watching and listening People that are in different states and different countries are watching and listening now. And I want to ask you, Father, through all that we're doing here, that ultimately you would be exalted, you would be praised, you would get the attention, and you would connect us somehow in your supernatural power uh, to do the work that you've got planned. And we believe you will. We trust that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What does Dallas, Texas, a tornado, and a virus have in common? Now, that's not the beginning of a good joke. That's not even the beginning of a bad joke. It's a serious question. And in a few minutes, I want to try to answer that for you. So hold on to that thought. What is what does Dallas, Texas... Uh, a tornado and a a virus have in common. Right now, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, a copy of God's Word, maybe on your phone or in a uh, handheld 
copy of God's Word there and look to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. This is the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. It is our last message together in the book of Nehemiah. We've been in this series that we've called Rebuild. We're talking about the impact that one person can have when their heart is burdened to rebuild something for the glory of God. And so today we come to this last chapter, last message. We're going to wrap these principles of rebuilding up. We remind you a little bit of the story. I know that last week and again this week that people are uh, jumping online with us that have not been a part of the whole series. But you look at this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It was written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, this book of Nehemiah is the story of the Israelites. They had been in captivity. They had been in slavery. They had been released. And they had begun to gather back into their uh, land, into their hometown, into the city of Jerusalem. And when they first came back, no temple, no walls around the city, just people gathering in. They now, when we come to Nehemiah, have rebuilt the city. I'm, I'm sorry, they had rebuilt the temple, but the walls around the city had not been rebuilt. And while they're there living and uh, very vulnerable to uh, enemies around them, feeling insecure, uh, still feeling incomplete, Nehemiah, who was one of them, was uh, a long way away in a city called Susa working for the king. And his brothers came to see him. The brothers come to see him. They give him a report of what's going on in Jerusalem. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. Uh, he is broken over the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And he begins to pray. And he begins to fast. And he begins to mourn. And he begins to weep. And you see God call him to go to Jerusalem to lead the effort of rebuilding the walls around the city. And so he's, he's in this time of, of praying and he's burdened. And I think about this that figuratively we're saying that in our lives like Nehemiah, we can recognize that there are things that need to be rebuilt. The report that Nehemiah got was that uh, the people were in trouble and they were in shame uh, the walls were broken down and the gates were burned. And when you think about that description, it might birth in your heart a call of something that's in trouble, something that's in shame, something that's broken down, something that in a lot of ways just looks like ashes. And we're thinking, okay, God, how can you rebuild something out of this? You may have for several weeks been thinking about what God wants to rebuild. You maybe even this very day will be burdened for what God wants to rebuild in your life. Maybe your walk with Christ. Maybe your career. Your finances. A relationship. We've, a lot of different ways that that might come up. But as you think about what God would have you rebuild, remember this key statement. God does rebuild broken things. That's our hope. God will rebuild broken things. But it has a starting point. And that starting point is, is that we must be willing for our story to bring Him glory. We must come to a place where we're 
even in the shame, in the trouble, in the, in the ashes of our life, to be willing to start from the point that, okay, God, this is where I am, and I want to see it rebuilt, but I want to start from that point to where you're going to get the glory, you're going to get the honor. People are going to know more about you than they will know about me. I'll learn more about you than even I might learn about me. I want you to be lifted up, and I want you to be exalted. Several principles that we've talked about in rebuilding, and I want to go through these just really fast. Again, for those joining in maybe for the first time, and good thing about watching online, you've got that pause button. If you miss one, you could always hit stop and jot it down or go back and listen to it. But we, we've put already down from Nehemiah uh, seven of these building principles, and number one is God rebuilds broken things. And number two, God powerfully works when we're patiently waiting. Number three, we said that when we rise to rebuild, opposition rises to resist. We're going to face pushback. We're going we're to be in a fight. We're going to be in a war if we're trying to bring God glory. And then the next one is that rebuilding is a group project. We don't do it alone. The best of leaders can't rebuild by themselves. We need other people in our lives. Number five, we saw that rebuilding is fraught with distractions. There's always something trying to get us to come down off the wall. There's always something that's trying to pull us away from what God has called us to do. Number six, rebuilding projects that last are done by the book. That means that when we start rebuilding, we don't take the world's wisdom. We seek God's wisdom. We, we go to the book. We, we go to God's word. We go to the Bible and we say, God, here I am. I want to obey. I want to know what you're saying. Show me. And it's done by the book. And then number seven, we looked at last week, rebuilding projects are ultimately soul projects. They're ultimately soul projects. God may be rebuilding a marriage Ultimately, he's rebuilding our soul. God may be rebuilding our careers or our finances or our health, but ultimately, God wants to work with our soul, with our spirit, and that's what lasts. And so today, as we come to Nehemiah chapter 13, we're adding on to these, and I want you to see some principles as we wrap this up. And we, in a lot of ways, you could call this the finishing work of rebuilding. Every house that you build gets to a point to where you say, well, all we like are the finishing touches. We uh, have carpenters who their specialty is doing the finishing work on a house. And so when we come to Nehemiah 13, I want to give you some finishing uh, principles for rebuilding. Uh, Nehemiah 13, let's look here. I'm not going to read this whole chapter all at once, but just kind of, uh, take some verses, give you this uh, principle, and then more verses and work our way through it for just a few minutes. And first of all, look at Nehemiah 1, verse uh, 1, 2, 3, a few verses here. One of the wildest chapters of the whole book, one of the wildest chapters of the whole Bible. There are some stories here that you won't ever forget in this one chapter. Nehemiah, 1, Nehemiah 13, verse 1, on that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written, No Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. 
For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Verse 4, now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, Nehemiah speaks here. He says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they, clean, they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Did you get it? Nehemiah is out of town. He comes back into town, and when he gets back into Jerusalem, he finds out that Tobiah had been given a room in the temple of the Lord. Now, when he, when he sees this, it just, it, it angers his soul. He becomes very angry. And he, he, it has to be, remember who Tobiah was. From the very beginning, chapter 2 on in the book of Nehemiah, it was Tobiah and Sanballat that had begun to uh, oppose the rebuilding of the walls. They were the enemy. And they were the ones that had been pushing back and fighting against. And Nehemiah was standing against them and resisting them and opposing them. They, they wanted to do away with Nehemiah. They wanted to stop the building. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah shows up. And Eliashib has given the place where they normally store the offerings to Tobiah to have a place to stay. It was like he had created an a, a Airbnb for Tobiah. It was a place for the... And it was the enemy. And, and it brings us to this principle for rebuilding. Here it is. When you rebuild, make no room for the enemy. When you rebuild, make no room for the enemy. The enemy is uh, crafty. Uh, the, the enemy is, can be very subtle. And somehow the enemy of Tobiah had wormed himself into a point to where he actually was inside a holy place. He was inside the house of God. Why did he have a room there? Well, one of the reasons he had a room there is because the people had stopped giving and there wasn't anything being stored in the rooms. There, there weren't any priests there because they weren't being 
paid and the people had withheld their tithes and offerings and they weren't worshiping like had been laid out for them. Even this short time that Nehemiah had been away, they had fallen right back into some old patterns and here's an empty room in the house of God and maybe Tobiah said, hey, why don't you give me a room there? I could stay there. And, and, and so Elishib in some way, former fashion, says, okay, let's do it. And here's something to remember. Um, talking about giving room for the enemy in our life, when we drift from our regular devotional life, we're basically opening up rooms for the enemy. When we drift away from our church attendance, when we drift away from reading God's Word, when we drift away from praying, when we drift away from giving, when we drift away from serving, when we, we begin to just kind of let those things slide just a little bit, maybe it has something to do with us needing to rebuild. Or maybe we've rebuilt and we get complacent and we drop our guard a little bit and some things begin to drift away from the Lord we're opening up space for the enemy to run in. So here's the application you think about this. How could you make room for the enemy? Maybe you're rebuilding a marriage or you're rebuilding a life or a walk with Christ or your heart or purity. Think about ways that you may be saving room for the enemy. You know, if you're, if you're rebuilding your life and you know that alcohol has been the thing that has wrecked you, it has destroyed your job or your life or your relationships. And that's where it all fell apart. And you say, okay, I'm going to rebuild and, and I'm going to stop drinking alcohol. But yet you build a house that has a wet bar in it. I mean, what do we do? We're, we're saying, hey, it's, it's, you know, a little bit of the enemy right here close by. Maybe there in your life there was a time of unfaithfulness. I, I, it's hard to think about this, but it's, it, it, you know that multiple times I've had people say to me who've been involved with someone else and been unfaithful in their relationship that they still want somehow to continue a relationship with that person that they have been involved with. It's making room for the enemy to come back in maybe some area of purity in your life and you say I'm gonna I'm gonna clean my life up but in your life on your phone you just won't delete that one app you just won't unfollow that one person that kind of gives you a little bit of an entrance point to go back to something that had destroyed your life. It'd be like in our finances, trying to rearrange everything in our life and do our debt and just not being willing to freeze the credit cards or cut up the credit cards. We still want to hold on to just a little bit of an option there. Here's a question. I, I can't come up with every situation, but it's possible that the second, you may be going through your second and third rebuild in your life. And the reason it's your second and third rebuild is because you kept saving a little spot there for the enemy. And he just keeps kind of fighting against you instead of doing what Nehemiah did and just cleaning the temple. Cleansing it, getting rid of all of it. So here's a question. Is there a Tobiah 
living in the closet of your life? Is there anything that you're still clinging there to that would give room for the enemy? You're not going to be able to finish this rebuild if you don't cleanse the temple, if you don't get rid of whatever it is that would fight against you and the glory of the Lord. Number two, look at verse um, 13, verse 11, chapter 13, verse 11. In chapter 13, verse 11, and then again in verse 17, and then again in verse 25. Three repeated statements. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials. Verse 17, I confronted the nobles. And then verse 25, I confronted them. Nehemiah came to the people. He saw that they had actually drifted back into the same sins that we looked at last week, that they had signed a a new covenant, a new fresh commitment of faithfulness. And some months go by, and they're right back where they were committing the same sins over again. Such a cautionary tale to us to to realize that just because we rebuild one time doesn't mean that we're we're home free for the rest of our lives. Uh, Nehemiah comes back and he confronted and he gathered the people together and spoke to them, addressed them. And then verse 17 and 18, he says, I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day. The first thing he addressed was their tithes and offerings that they had stopped giving there. Then in verse uh, 17 and 18, they were profaning the Sabbath. He confronted them about this. And then in verse 25, he confronted them and he addressed this issue of them marrying their sons and daughters to other nations, which basically meant marrying their sons and daughters to other gods, to other belief systems, to other uh, 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 faith uh, ways of believing. Here's the principle. Building, rebuilding requires a firm hand of discipline. Rebuilding requires a firm hand of discipline. If chapter 13 says anything, it shows us the difference between passion and passivity. Uh, we, We come to chapter 13 and there's some things here the way that Nehemiah reacts that leaves us going, whoa, wow. Uh, You you may have missed it here a little bit, but one of the things he does is that he comes into the place where Tobiah was living and he he wrecks the place. He gets rid of all the things that belong to Tobiah. and, And you cannot help but think of another time when the temple was cleansed. When Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament walked into the temple courts and he turned over the tables and all of the selling and trading that was going on. He says, you've turned it into a den of robbers and this is to be a place of prayer. And Nehemiah comes in and he's, he's kind of the, uh, the 
he, he does what Jesus would do later. He, he's, he, he disciplines the people. He shows a firm hand in this. And then when he talks to them about the, the Sabbath day, again, he, he gives them new commands. He says in verse 19, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, listen, I will lay hands on you. I'm t that is a strong, firm hand of discipline. And what, what Nehemiah does is like, we're not doing this anymore. And there are times in rebuilding where someone who's doing the rebuilding has to come along and say, enough. Th this isn't going to keep happening like this. We can't keep falling back into these same patterns. And for us to rebuild there's got to be someone in the situation that says, we're going to stop this. Now, one of the most dramatic scenes is, is in verse 25 when they were talking about marrying their sons and daughters to other nations. Basically, again, other gods. It says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Yes, I read it. It's in there. It's there. And you wondered, is he going to talk about that? Well, basically, Nehemiah has a righteous temper tantrum. And, and I don't, I'm not offering this up as uh, uh, some suggestions of the three steps of discipline. Uh, but here's what we do know from this. Some things here we can't understand but we do know this Nehemiah saw the consequences that were ahead for the sins that they were committed and it wrecked his heart he had poured his life into these people and they'd rebuilt the walls and they'd seen God do miracles and they were unwilling to um, cling to God alone one of the things he says here about the people is, is that your, your children now that have married other gods, they know the language of other nations more than they know the, their own language. They understand the language of foreign gods more than they understand their own Israelite language. Verse 24. It's a great lesson to us. That when we marry our families to the world, when we marry our hearts to the world, one of the evidences that we've done that is, is that there's more knowledge, more passion, more excitement, more happiness found in the things of the world than the things of the Lord. And maybe a practical way would even just be thinking about the songs we know and the the lessons that we've learned and the advice that we heed and we, we may know what uh, that magazine says or that blog says or that follow on Twitter says but have no idea how it clashes with God's word and 
Nehemiah is like, what are you doing? Rebuilding requires a firm hand of discipline. Last thing. Number three, let me just give you this finishing lesson. God is always doing more than we know or understand. God is always doing more than we know or understand. We started with hope. God rebuilds broken things. That gives us hope. And all of those other building principles, we work through those, grasp those, live with those, follow those. But the last one ends with hope as well. And it's that truth that God is always doing more than we know or understand. In chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it talks about reading God's word. And, they, and it refers to this passage that's actually in the Old Testament book of Numbers where uh, Balak hired Balaam to come and he wanted him to pronounce a curse on the Israelite people. Balak was a Moabite, Moabite king and he recognized Balaam as being someone that per, could pronounce curses and could pronounce blessings. And he paid him to come and pronounce a curse on the Israelite people believing that if he did that he would have a better chance of defeating them with his army. Well, it was going to be a curse, but when Balaam shows up, a lot of events take place. You can read it in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. What actually happens is that instead of Balaam pronouncing a curse, he pronounces a blessing. And it is that picture there that is true over and over and over again in Scripture. So many times, things that we think are going to be a curse in our life God works in such a way that it turns out to be a blessing. And he does more than we could have ever imagined, more than we ever thought, uh, more even than we can understand. It's Romans 8, 28. For God works together all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's Philippians 1, 6. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So, let me ask you this. What does Dallas, Texas, a tornado, and a virus have in common? Here's what they have in common. A couple of summers ago, Carla and I went to Dallas, Texas, not knowing there that we would pick up a card that said, the Bing people. The Bing people were an unreached people group. And we believe that God wanted us as a church family to try to reach the Bing people who did not know Jesus, who did not have a gospel witness. God was saying, we want you to reach them. That was Dallas, Texas. A tornado. When we sent a team last spring to Nepal and started looking for the Bing people, it turns out that the only recorded tornado that had happened in a village where the Bing people lived happened just weeks before our team arrived. And when our team started trying to uh, find the Bing people and have contact with them, the Bing people that our team found received that team because they thought they were relief workers coming to help them with a tornado. And then a virus. 
Do you know today that if we wanted to go to Nepal, we could not go? In fact, we can't go for many, many, many weeks. But here's what God did, more than we could imagine, more than we could even understand. He put some people in Dallas, Texas to pick up a card with the Bing people on it. He put some people on the ground in Nepal. He put a tornado there. He allowed this tornado to come through at a time that positioned things in a way that they would be receptive to a team of Americans that arrived on their soil. They shared the gospel, and right there on that day, one of those being people believed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And now just a few months later, we can't even get to them. And one of the men in our church leadership team meeting said this week, he said, imagine this, think about this. God, knowing all along that we wouldn't be able to go to them soon, worked it out in a way that we could get to them so that that individual's name would be written down in heaven. And there is a witness for Jesus in that village today. And I share that story to remind you that there is hope for us to cling to. That God's at work, that Jesus is at work. You know, the, the, what the world thought was the greatest curse of all, Jesus Christ being nailed to a cross and crucified, turns out to be the greatest blessing of eternity, providing for us salvation. And I want to exhort you today, even in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a virus, in the midst of something in your life that's broken down, God is doing more than you could ever know or ever imagine. And so today I want to ask you if you need to start rebuilding. Maybe you need to build with a chief cornerstone. I'd love for you to turn your life to Jesus Christ and ask him to save you. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray with you about that. You're watching in some form or fashion. You can go to our website, watkinsville.org, and there's a place there where you can connect and record a response. So we had it happen this past week. We got a response from online where an individual said, In my home, I prayed and received Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Would you turn your life over to him and start building with him today? Let me pray for us. Father, we bow before you so thankful that there is hope. So thankful that at a time when the Israelites were just, they just kept falling over and over again, kept going back to the same sins, Lord, that out there in the future you were providing a Savior to change our hearts, to forgive us of our sin, to give us new life. Father, thank you for that hope. Thank you today that in a house, in a car, on a back porch, that somebody right now could pray to you and ask you to forgive them, to save them, to change them. Lord, I pray that somebody right now would start building with a new hope. They would start building their life based on Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that that surrender would happen. I pray they'd be moved to share that with people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.